Hi, it's Dan here for Dusty Disc Radio. This is the podcast Liner Notes, revealing chats with Canada's retro music makers. Today, I'm very honored to have as my special guest, Roy Forbes, known in the 1970s as BIM. We'll be talking about music and travels and the ups and downs of being a career entertainer. And we'll get some other insights as well about recording, working on major albums, and much more as we get a perspective about the Canadian music scene from someone who's been there for many decades. Roy is an iconic Canadian folk singer with a distinct and unmistakable voice. He's also a record producer, film composer, songwriting mentor, a radio host at CBC and CKUA, and a popular music historian of uh, 78 RPM Records, all of which we'll get into in our discussion. So thanks for joining me today, Roy. How are you? I'm well, Dan, and you? Great. I'm fine. Thanks. And thanks for coming on. I really appreciate it. Uh, You're one of the people I wanted to talk to from uh, your history around Vancouver. And of course, I've been around here since I was a kid and uh, enjoyed your music and have known of you. I don't think we've ever met, unfortunately. I don't believe we have, no. Yeah, would have liked to, uh, but we know lots of people in common. So... uh, so I was going through your history, and 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 you're a, you were a kid from Dawson Creek, and and did I read here you had six older sisters? Is that right? Oh, something like that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You poor man, yeah. and you survived oh, the, all that. <laughs> you know what? It was wonderful. It was, okay. it was it was wonderful. They say I was spoiled rotten. <laughs> Well, the old saying is, you know, when you, when you have, if you have a couple older sisters, you have three moms, right? Well, you must've had seven moms. Had a lot of moms. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, good for you. How did that affect your life moving forward? Oh, uh, well, I think, um, you know, nothing but support really from all of them when I decided to strike out and, uh, do what, uh, it it was almost like it was decreed that I would do a you know, that I would make a life making music and yeah. uh, nothing but support from all of them. Well, interesting because, uh, you know, I've read quite a bit on birth order and being the youngest, you often are, you know, a, a musician or an entertainer or a comedian or something. Youngest often drift towards that. And then I, so I thought about that when I was reading on your, when I was look, doing the research on yours, I thought, hmm, okay, you're the guy that has the guitar in his hand and you're singing for everybody, right? Oh, that's that's true. Yeah. Well, we all sang together. You see, and nice. I'm I, I should say I'm the second youngest. My okay. my uh, youngest sister Brenda, ten years younger than me, but I was oh. the youngest for the formative years. But yeah, we yeah. all sang together, and when I got the guitar, uh, then we could really let her rip. Yeah. Very nice. And of course, Forbes is a uh, a good Scottish name. My my mother in law, that's her maiden name, is Forbes. Okay. Yeah. yeah, and they were they were from Ocean Falls, actually. So there was a, there must have been a number of uh, Scottish people that settled around BC and around this area. I guess so. My my strain came from Saskatchewan. Okay, nice. Yeah, from uh, Saskatoon area. Yeah, the Forbes is and, and the Prices and then the Moors and that, well, anyway. Yeah, that's funny. So you must have realized at an early age you had a very unique sounding voice. Oh well. I realized it and I was told (laughs) in no uncertain terms, Uh, but that didn't stop me. And when I look back, you know, people uh, felt weird about Billie Holiday's voice and some people felt weird about Hank Williams's voice. So I'm keeping good company. Yes. Well, well, I mean, obviously in in the music business, you want to have your mark. You want to have that distinctive thing about you that people go, oh yeah, it's that guy. 
And with you, you had that right away. Of course, with your with your nickname Bim, and then that unique sounding voice, it was a hook that people could remember because I I knew exactly who you were. I was a teenager in the seventies, growing up, and we all knew who Bim was, and we knew your voice. And as soon as you open your mouth, everyone knows who that is. Yeah, which is a blessing, right, for a for an entertainer. Yeah, I think so. Um, it's um, it, it you know it paid the bills around here for over fifty years. So <laughs> what can I say? Yeah, and good for you. And and so you showed up in Vancouver in in seventy one. I guess you came down here from Dawson Creek. But I'm always curious, like you know, yeah, you sing with the family and you're sort of playing around the campfire or singing to amuse yourselves. When did you realize that you could actually make a living, or you thought to yourself maybe maybe I could make something out of this? Well, you know, the old uh, got the guitar at age fourteen, grade eight, and uh, within three weeks. Uh, figured out the mysteries of the one, the four, and the five. And when that penny dropped, uh, I was off writing songs. And my friend Terry and I had a little bedroom band. Uh, He was a drummer, still is. And, uh, you know, he played pails and ice cube shakers, you know, (laughs) things like that. Uh, By the age of 15, I was making money playing with our band, The Crystal Ship. So really, uh, even though I was in high school, I started making money playing music when I was 15 and uh, it just kept going from there. Yeah. Interesting. And my experience is much the same, but you don't really overthink it, right? You just kind of go, okay, well, this is something I can do. I'm obviously getting paid to to make some music here. So I'm just going to keep going with that. I was, uh, I mean, I didn't overthink it. It just was, you know, when I had the band, there were times when it almost fell apart and I made sure it didn't. And mm-hmm. uh, when the time came to uh, leave, you know, I graduated and uh, I had met a band called Spring, who you might remember, uh, Terry mm-hmm. Frewer and Doug Edwards, Cat Hendricks, Bob Buckley. They came through yeah. town, I guess it would be uh, near the end of grade 12, so February 71. And uh, their manager, Roger Schiffer, were traveling with them. Imagine, Dan, traveling uh, in Northern BC, pushing your 45. Wow. <laughs> yeah. He had a yeah. record called country boy named Willie. Anyway, I opened for them and I had just written a batch of new songs a couple of weeks before, cause they were tumbling out of me by that time. Wow. And they loved it so much that they invited me to join them in Fort St. John the next night to open oh, wow. for them in Fort St. John. And, uh, Roger gave me his phone number and, um, I kept in touch, and once uh, school was over with, I was out of Dawson Creek, down to mm. Vancouver, to living in a hippie house. And, uh, you know, I was fortunate to have that avenue to something with Roger and with the guys from Spring. Uh, you know, that summer I wrote a song for a band called Skylark, which you mm-hmm. probably know had David Foster and B.J. Cook and Donnie yeah. Gerard. Yeah. Uh, they didn't record it, but, uh, I wrote it specifically for them. They learned it. I sang it with them and, uh, you know, it was, uh, just on from there, you know, with all the ups and downs that 50 plus years in the biz can bring. Yeah. Well, it's, I'm curious too, because when you come down, like, you know, you got stars in your eyes, you're barely even 20 years old. You're, you're a teenager. 18. Yeah. And you're going, I'm going to Vancouver. Did you have a plan or you just sort of figure out and see what happens? Yeah. No, just, uh, 
I just kept writing songs and, uh, you know, the plan was to play music. I mean, I, you know, didn't have any plan to getting a job or anything because that was my job. Although at the time I didn't want to call it work. Uh, mm. It was an escape for other things when I was a kid in Dawson Creek. Suddenly mm. here I am in Vancouver and it's my thing. It's my main yeah. thing. A little adjusting to that, but uh, no, I mean, I, it was like, um, you know, I, I always knew from when I was three years old that I would do music. Nice. And then when you got to Vancouver, you got involved right away in the live gigs and the recording. I mean, it was an exciting time for music, right? There was lots of buzz and music going on. There was lots going on. And, and you know, uh, being up in Dawson Creek, uh, you, you were fairly isolated. It was, uh, you know, music by magazine and album. Uh, yeah. You know, you'd read about people and blah, blah, blah. And, and suddenly I'm in Vancouver and people are coming to town and I can go see them, you know, mm. went and saw Led Zeppelin for God's sakes, you know? Yep. And, uh, and before I know it, I'm touring with John Lee Hooker. Well, I read, wow. I knew about John Lee Hooker, but there I am riding around in a station wagon with John Lee. And, wow. uh, it was, it was just a, you know, a kaleidoscopic, uh, collage of, all kinds of thing coming at me and I was loving it. Yeah. Well, that's the interesting part of it. I was going to ask you about that because you must have been influenced somewhat by the psychedelic bands of the sixties. And then of course you, you were familiar with the 78s and all the, the Hank, Hank Williams and all that stuff coming up as well. So it was a very eclectic sort of musical time and, and you know, the heavy bands like the seeds of time and stuff, but there was a parallel stream of the folk stuff too, that was equally embraced by many people. Yeah. Um, well, uh, you know, with my band, the crystal ship, I mean, we were guilty of, of 20 minute versions of all along the watchtower with a drum go, solo yeah. before the second verse. <laughs> <laughs> I have a tape of it, but you're not going to hear it. <laughs> yeah, there you go. But, um, yeah, there, you know, and I, I, uh, sat in with the seeds of time when I came down here, you know, my Roger arranged oh. for me to go to one of the clubs. I don't know if it was the body shop, but I, you know, I sat in, I got, I met those guys, uh, Lindsay yeah. Mitchell and the gang, but, course, yeah. uh, my gig was, uh, you know, uh, I had left the band thing behind in my mind and had become a singer songwriter. If it was good enough for Neil Young, I could do it too. Yeah. Well, and, and it's a good uh, parallel to think of Neil Young because he did basically just about everything. I read his book too, right? And he would join different bands and did different things and played acoustic, played in the band, did everything. Basically. There are similarities right. between Neil and I actually yeah. uh, in that regard. And in fact, uh, one of the more mind-blowing things and pivotal things that happened to me in early 1971, I saw his show at the Queen Elizabeth Theatre. Uh, John Hammond opened, and then Neil was there acoustic. And uh, between the two of them, they cemented it for me, especially Neil, because yeah. he uh, he sat there, he told us funny stories, he played a song he'd written in the hotel the night before, can't remember which one. But uh, right. seeing him, I was still in school then, but seeing Neil, it 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 really galvanized me. And I thought, yeah, I'm doing this. Hmm. Yeah. And Neil is one of those very rare guys that can get up in front of, you know, 10,000 people with an acoustic guitar and captivate them 
and get them all sort of moving and singing. And it's, it's a rare talent, right? Well, it is. Of course, it helped to be really famous and to be able to draw 10,000 people. Then they're going to yeah. love everything <laughs> that comes out of you. But for sure. No, no, he can do that for sure. Yeah. Amazing. So were you ever part of the B-ins? Remember the, they had the, the Easter B-ins and all that stuff at Stanley I, Park? Did I think you I played a those? couple, at least one yeah. that I know yeah. of. Yeah, at, at least one. But I think by the time I got there, probably 72, it didn't okay. quite have the same pizzazz as it did in earlier days, or at least people telling me about them, you know. Yes, I think you're right about that because I in 2007 I did a show with with Bill Henderson. He was up in Merritt and he was doing a show and we were talking at the side of the stage and he said that it's 40 years since the Summer of Love and that was 67 and that's yeah. when that was the height of the the sort of hippie movement and the the be-ins and those sort of things. Yeah, I, I and I think you know by the time 70 71 things started to change a bit, you know and. Uh, yeah. So, and maybe I'd change too by that time. Hey, I went 19. (laughs) I've been around, man. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah. And I wonder about your influences too, because, you know, we were talking about that, like that time you got James Taylor, you got Cat Stevens, you got Gordon Lightfoot. Those guys are all active and, and got music out, but then you've got the the 70s bands and you know even even bands like Badfinger the Beatles are still relevant and yeah so what were your main influences oh uh let me think now um well you know I can't I mean the Beatles have always been there they're still there you know they never left uh from from when they hit the Ed Sullivan show you know I was singing Beatles songs for kids in the playground at at elementary Mm. school in grade five um, yeah. and, uh, I followed them and I followed Dylan and the Stones and, you know, Hendrix and the Who. And yeah. once I got to Vancouver, <clears throat> I discovered the blues, Mississippi, Fred McDowell, and, you know, toured with John Lee Hooker and all yeah. the blues players were coming through town. And I got to open for, you know, Buddy Guy and Junior Wells at the Egress six nights yeah. in a week, two shows a night. It was like wow. going to school. Then there was John Hartford, who I also opened for, was a masterful solo performer. Um, And, you know, I'm still listening to McCartney, the Ram album. I loved the Van Morrison Band and Street Choir record. I came to Moondance later, but Van was a big influence. Uh, Creedence Clearwater, of course, uh, you know, back in the band days. A little bit of Cat Stevens for about three months. And then I heard... Loudon Wainwright and especially John Prine. And mm. that was that was a pivotal night. There was some good pot that night as well. But <laughs> I heard both of those albums in one sitting. And yeah. uh like that John Prine record, the first one, still uh it's an, an incredible achievement of songwriting. Uh and uh, it kind of you know flipped me around jesse winchester of course uh yep. was a big one james taylor not so much but yep. um yeah john prine i mean that was i thought ooh, there's something going on there and it yeah, took me cool. away from uh it took me away from my you know um uh, pseudo hippie lyrics that I was writing, you know, influenced by Neil Young and, uh, you know, band Light Traffic. I mean, uh, yeah. some of the lyrics, I look at them now and I go, what? <laughs> <laughs> so hearing John, yeah. it kind of uh, put my feet on the ground a bit more. 
Yeah. No, good. And and, and the thing is, is that um, th- there was such a wide range of things to be influenced by. So often I would say to younger people today, like have a wide palette, like listen to a lot of different things and draw from different influences that we, we had the luxury of that because we would listen to Johnny Cash. We'd listen to Led Zeppelin and The Who and Gordon Lightfoot, whatever. It was yeah. all good. And my, my dad used to bug me, oh, you're listening to Acid Rock. I said, well, dad, we listen to everything. Yeah. You know, um, what happened uh, when I came to, uh, came to Vancouver, not came to, what happened when I came to Vancouver was that, uh, A, there were used record stores, Rohan's, places like that. And B, there was this big get back to the roots thing going on. So Hmm. I was out, I was out buying uh, you know, Blues LP by Buckle White, and I mentioned Mississippi Fred McDowell. Robert Johnson, of course, uh, he wasn't as accessible as Mississippi Fred McDowell at that time. And also, I discovered that I actually did like country music, which I'd grown up with and had cast aside as a teenager. And hmm. I started collecting 78s in 1972, and the first six I bought for a dime a piece, it was like Hank Williams, Webb Pierce, yeah. Ernest Tubb, Carter Family, et cetera. And yeah. uh, that opened me up to country music again. Well, good for you. And and there's some good stuff there. I mean, like it, dismissing any genre of music is probably not a good thing to do anyways. But once you listen to it a little more deeply, you realize the harmonies and some of the melodies and the messages in those songs are, are pretty rich, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and to me, it spoke deep uh, down into the, it, it spoke deeply to the deep roots of my musical being because I grew up with that stuff. And mm, as I say, yeah. I cast it aside and it was almost like a big rediscovery. And when I got into Jimmy Rogers in 1973, uh, it was like I was home. I, I got mm. everything that the uh, singing Brakeman had recorded. There were about six or eight LPs, I think, and I got them all, drove everybody in our communal house nuts <laughs> listening to Jimmy and Hank Williams. And yeah. uh, and that's around the time, I guess 73 is around the time I fiddling around with slide guitar and started yeah. to play so lonesome I could cry. And uh, yeah. of course, that has been, uh, some people think I wrote it, actually. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Sorry, I wish I had. Yeah, well, you did a nice version, and, and I was going to ask you about that because the slide is really prominent on there, and and then there's lots of actually good slide parts in lots of your songs. Yeah, I I I started playing slide when I heard Mississippi Fred McDowell, and yeah. I discovered open tuning, and I thought, oh, yeah. that's how they're doing it. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, I I I think I tried to do a tally once of how many albums have slide guitar. Almost all of them. It might be a couple that don't. But most, almost all of them have slide in one way or another, acoustic and electric. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting with the slide because it creates a certain flavor. It's, it's it gives you the fretless sound on a fretted instrument for one thing, but it gives you that sort of I don't know southerny kind of flavor that really is cool. Yeah, I I just like uh, it. It close to the human voice, you know. You know, it's uh, you can't quite do that on a fretted instrument, but mm-hmm. on uh, you know, and I, I wasn't thinking about that at the time. It just, I just liked the sound of it, and yeah. trying to get it in tune and not have it clunk too much. 
<laughs> you know, yes, learning how true. to how to dampen it uh, behind the slide so you didn't get the uh, all those weird notes. Uh, you know, as you're sliding up and a higher note is sliding down. You know, all the yes. damping and all the stuff you have to do to really make it work. Uh, well, I'm raising the strings up because I I use a shorty slide, but my strings are low for playing, right? So it right now my Gurian, which I've had since 1972, the action is a little too low. I don't play any slide in my live shows right now. I okay. love the feel of the guitar, but I know that after the next three dates I do, I'm going to have to take it in and have Paul Iverson uh, do a job on it because uh, I need to start playing slide again. Yeah, and you got to have it a bit higher. You, you do, the you frets, do, right? yeah. And, and then you got to you got to work out the touch. You got to develop the touch so yeah. that uh, you don't have too much clanking. Although I don't mind a little bit. Ry Cooter, you know, listening to his record taught me that yeah, it's okay to clank a little bit. It makes it real. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And then of course, if you if you have it set up solely for slide. You can't actually play it no. as a so, regular guitar. <laughs> no. And so when I did So Lonesome in uh, 75 on Kid Full of Dreams, that was just my normal setup. So it, the action was a little higher than it is now. Yeah. Oh, very cool. So then I was curious when I was looking at your timeline. So you came to Vancouver and then your early bands or your early connections in Vancouver, you got connected with Sherry Elric, I guess. And, and you must have known Valdi and the guys from the hometown band and stuff. And, and that was later. Was yeah. Yeah. Moving into, okay. uh, uh, you know, when I started to work with uh, Claire Lawrence, um, mm-hmm. I, well, I think, no, I met Sherry. But met Pipe Pumpkin in the Kootenays in 1974, early 1974. We'd never heard each other before, and we became fast friends and fans uh, at the Kootenay Valley Folk Festival at Selkirk College, I think, in 1974. They were amazing, Pipe Pumpkin. I mean, they really, they really, uh, they had, at that time, they had all had Marcus Berry pickups, and they all had Fender Deluxe amps. So oh, wow. it had this kind of clangy electric sound. wasn't acoustic yeah. at all, really. Uh, well, they were pretty energetic too, right? Well, I mean, they, they were, were. Well, Rick, yeah. Yeah. Rick, <laughs> Rick, yeah, uh, Mister Feel. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, you know, and Valdi, I, I keep trying to remember how we met. I mean, I was aware of him, of course, uh, rock and roll song. And uh, maybe I opened for him. I might have opened for him at Cap College in 75, mm. 70, yeah, 75, I think. And yeah. then, uh, you know, I had met Claire and Bill uh, from Chilliwack when I opened for them in late 71. I did some shows okay. in the prairies with them. And uh, Claire and I kind of kind of kept in touch and you know one thing led to another he was producing the cbc great canadian gold rush show which which is a whole other story as far as canadian music goes mm-hmm. and um the stuff we did uh, he had me in for a session and the stuff we did ended up being demos for uh, the kid full of dreams album which he ended up producing yeah, which is neat because I, I did talk to Howie Vickers about uh, the collectors. And then, of course, after after he left, I think it was a late 69, then the band sort of carried on a little bit, but then they just drifted into other things. And, of course, Claire was well known for his excellent playing and, and then producing. Well, hold and, on, though. They, drift, they drifted into Chilliwack and they did Lonesome Mary. 
I mean, that right. was, they weren't just drifting on into other things. Um, yes. You know, they turned into a three-piece. Uh, was, was uh, No, yeah, how the heck did that work? I think they're four-piece, and then when I worked with them, they were three-piece. Claire was playing bass, Bill mm. on guitar, and violin. <laughs> Yes, <laughs> he played fiddle and Ross on drums, and they did they did that album with Lonesome Mary, which is still one of the bigger Chilliwack songs. Oh, it's there. absolutely so, great! Yeah. I was a teenager when that stuff came out, and yeah. Nights from the Valley and and Dreams, 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 and that there was yeah. some of my favorite albums. That uh, yeah. So I guess a, a better word would be they morphed into. That's what I always some, say, yeah, because yeah. yeah. I played a collectors on my radio show a fair bit, and I always nice. mention that uh, they morphed into Chilliwack. Yes. Yeah. Very nice. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so it was good that you were able to connect with those guys because you, you seem to be able to connect with them and, and help your career move forward, I guess, is, is the way that it worked for you. Well, right? Getting the yeah, I never really thought about it that way. But, uh, it you know, we connected in uh, Saskatoon and Regina. I remember Claire saying, "Ooh, you could orchestrate your guitar parts. And I'm thinking, what the hell does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, anyway, Claire and I ended up uh, working together on uh, the first two albums, Kid Full of Dreams for Casino and then Rain Check on Misery. And yeah. uh, he actually, on the new album, Edge of Blue, which was released in 2020, he plays yeah. on The Last Cut on Rumble Strip. So we're Yeah, still, I did see that. In a, yeah, yeah. Good. and most of that is the first take. By the way, yeah. he's oh, so nice. good. Yeah, yeah. I did. I did listen to it, and I did. I did check it out. Well, that's so cool that you've you've made uh, remained connected over all these years, and we're able to sort of reconnect and, and play some music together as well. He, uh, yeah, and he um, he mentored me, and um, he he's always done good stuff for me. You know, when he produced albums for people who maybe needed songs, he's always said, check out Roy. And, you know, um, nice. Sherry did a couple, she covered a couple, uh, Valdi covered two, uh, Matt Minglewood did me and my baby. In fact, we've nice. just done a, um, a two hour special for the show Canadian spaces where we play nothing but other people covering my songs. Oh, from nice. 75 yeah. to 2021. So anyway, Claire, Claire, you know, he's just a great guy and a good friend. And um, yeah. when UHF got together, he, he came in and co-produced or he kind oh, of nice. produced it and we, yeah. you know, took co-producer. So it, he's, um, yeah, he just, he's a touchstone. Well, those kinds of connections are really important, I guess, in the business too, right? And I, I did talk to Sherry just a, a little while ago, and you know, I interviewed uh, David Hayes, who was. I David's heard. Wife, I haven't but, read, yeah. I, or I haven't listened to that yet. I'm going yeah. to though, yeah. And then he, so he came out from Toronto to set up Little Mountain, and then you were able to go in there and record your first two albums there, right? And he engineered them. Yeah, he did. Uh, he, uh, Dave, and Claire, and I had a thing, the three of us, that was just. Yeah fantastic the way the three yeah. of us worked together um nice. you know the big deal with electra came along and uh kind of yeah. shattered that a bit but um yeah. uh, you know i could have just i wish we were still working together it was just it was magical and i well, i had the chance to hear the rain check yeah. on misery album from front to back uh which featured on a ckua radio show about two months ago and hmm. uh was it was amazing to hear it listening on my little iPhone speaker 
<laughs> the Knicks held up, and uh, yeah. yeah, it was uh, it was a magical time working with Dave and Claire. Good, yeah, I had a great talk with them, and what a smart guy, and and just really methodical and really good at what he did, and, and of course, a lot of his his resume is is amazing. Oh, it is, it's, yeah. The thing is, when I hear those early albums, it I, I you know. He got a great acoustic guitar sound. He didn't do anything. He just put a mic in front of it just the right way. It told me to sit still. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, you know, you hear those early BIM albums and uh, the acoustics, they sound pretty darn good for the time they were recorded. Well, I think it would, you know, my, my take on the recording at that time was you're just trying to find a natural, warm sound. And yeah, sometimes, you know, I, I felt that uh, listening to this, some of the uh, drums from that era where they taped them down and they just kind of went fuck, fuck, mm, fuck. Yeah. I, I, I'm not crazy about the drum sound, but the thing with uh, those early BIM albums and most of my albums actually is that I was pretty stubborn and all of the vocals on those first two albums were live with with the band track. They're all oh, done, wow. vocal and guitar, they're all done live. At the and, same time. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Which is yeah. which is really almost unheard of, right? I mean, well, now you at any time, but uh, yeah. but uh, that's where I'm best. And usually, hmm. you know, first, second, maybe third take, but get me yeah. early. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's interesting you should say that because that's right. You learn how to play and sing, and then you go in the studio and they split those two things up. So you play the part, then you go in and sing later, and it's kind of artificial because that's not the way you you play. When I did some early recording with uh, Terry McManus at Canbase in 1972, he wanted to approach it that way. So this one song, it was just going to be acoustic. I just sat and played the guitar and pretended I was singing. And then I had to go in and do the vocal and it just, and no click track, of course, right? So uh, it just felt weird. So I was uh, forceful enough to almost insist that. that I do the vocals live and even can't catch me where we, I did redo the vocal on that, but when I redid it, I played guitar as well. So it was still hmm. a performance. Yeah. So how did they isolate the sound? Uh, well, it's- little mountain had a, uh, they had a vocal booth. They had it off to the side of the, uh, control room. And, um, on the first album, uh, Terry Frewer, he played acoustic guitar and quite a few things. He and I were in there together. So, okay, but I mean, the, I mean, isolating your voice from the acoustic that you're playing at the same time. Oh, you well, can't you, do you, that, right? you don't totally. I mean, there's leakage. Yeah. There's going to be leakage. Yeah. You know, Edge of Blue is all live, much like Kid Full of Dreams and Rain yeah. Check. And you just got leakage, you know? I mean, yeah. you just have to deal with it. Yeah, no, cool. That's, but it's a more natural way to play. So I well, appreciate you saying that. It totally yeah. is, you know. And, and I mean, I've done it the other way, Dan. I, you know, yeah. I've spent two days on a vocal, and you know, I remember once um, for I think it was the Love Turned to Ice album. I spent a whole day on the vocal for Wild Man, and mm. uh, it just just didn't work. But yeah. what it did do was it. Uh, helped me work out some kinks so that the next day I came in and I said, Oh, we better try this again. So we went on a different track and I got it in one take. So cool. But, uh, but I liked, I liked the playing, um, you know, I like perform. I'm a performer. 
Um, You know, I've done the other thing, you know, with the drum machines and, you know, blah, blah, the home demos. I mean, we all did that in the 80s, right? We had our Porta Studios and Tascam 8 tracks or whatever. Absolutely. But I don't, I quit demoing at home years ago because I didn't want to miss anything. So if I'm going to do it, I want to be in, catch it in the studio where it's going to sound like it should and it's going to feel like it should. Because you know yeah. you uh, you've recorded too, and you know trying to catch the feel of the demo. I mean, you can spend days trying to catch that. What do they call it? Lightning in a bottle or whatever. So I <laughs> well, like sure. to wait. I, mean, yeah. I like to wait and yeah. uh, and just do it when I'm in the studio. Well, how many times have you heard that that an artist will say, "Well, the demos were actually better than the album because you suck the life right out of the album." Yeah, you get it right in the end, but it's got no life in it. Yeah. It's, yeah, exactly. You know, so yeah. The demo is just you singing and playing the way you sing and play. The music's yeah. just emanating from you, and, and that's yeah. it. So, yeah. Well, cool. Well, thanks for sharing that. And and then the other thing I was going to ask you about: um, Did you have a studio band? Like like when you recorded those first few BIM albums, you didn't actually have a band, right? Because you recorded with the hometown guys. You had Jeff Air and and some of the other guys in there with you. Um, right? The first album with Cat Hendricks on drums and Terry yeah. Frewer on electric guitar and acoustic uh myself on acoustic and doug edwards on bass and cat and terry and doug had been in they were in spring they they discovered me (laughs) you know so it was so cool cool. and then my friend gary colliger came in from edmonton and he played second guitar on a few few tunes as well and of course i did i did electric overdubs on both of those records uh, Miss Avon, okay. my my big moment on on furious uh, English gunfighter slide, as Claire called it. Yeah. So, <laughs> so and then the second band, uh, the second album, Jeff came in, and that was actually before the the hometown band kind of formed in the middle of making Rain Check on Misery. Okay. So, um, uh, so it was Jeff and Doug. Terry came in for a bit, and I handled all most of the guitars on uh, yeah. Rain Check on Misery. Okay, cool. And then because I, I, again, I when I was looking at the credits, I saw the community there. Like Jeff, I talked to Jeff actually just a few days ago, and yeah. he's uh, he's still out there doing his thing. But he was he was right in the center of all that. And then you had Robbie King came in and played as well, right? I Robbie came in. Robbie. He did, uh, yeah, he, yeah, he did a couple of things. Yeah, he plays piano on Colder Than Ever. Um, yeah. yeah, Robbie and all you know. As I say, you know that album was done over a few months, and mm. as we were doing the album, this hometown band thing started to happen. Okay, yeah. I got you. Because because that actually Sherry said that she left Pied Pumpkin to join the hometown band. Well, she did. I remember I yeah. was you know commiserating with her at the Ottawa Folk Festival. We were there in '76, yeah. and uh, okay. she was very. She's oh, I don't know what to do. I, I'm not yeah. sure what I said. <laughs> Yeah. Well, she had some, she, she had, did have some misgivings about it looking back on it. Yeah. Because Pied Pumpkin was a very successful band as well. I mean, you you just take your best shot at the time, but, uh, you know. Yeah. Well, you know, we all do the, we all make the decisions and, uh, but we're still standing. So there you go. There you go. (laughs) Yeah. 
So well, a couple of things I wanted to ask you about was, uh, so, so you didn't have an actual band, you had a studio band. And then when you went out and played, you just played mainly by yourself or did you have a band? Did you Mainly by myself. Out? And I uh, did quite a few shows with Gary Colliger, who I mentioned, uh, a guitar yeah. player and Betty Chaba on vocal. They were from Edmonton hmm. and I had met okay. them, you know, cause I did the coffee house circuit in like, you know, 73 to 75 and was, you know, all over the prairies. And I really developed a lot of friends in Edmonton nice. and Gary and Betty. Yeah. Uh, I would occasionally, when I could afford it, I would uh, have them come out to, to flesh out the sound a bit. Okay. Yeah. I mean, you were strong on your own. It's just when you, when you have a studio band, then you go out to play and people want to hear what they hear on the album. And well, well, I always used to worry about that because, you know, we put horns and stuff on and I'd think, well, yeah. geez, when people come out, they're not going to hear those horns. But you just dealt with it. Everybody dealt with it, uh, yeah. you know, and most of the gigs were solo, but some had Gary and Betty. Uh, there, uh, there were a couple of shows where I opened for Super Tramp. We used to do yeah. foolish things like that in those days. And wow. uh, I had Terry Frewer on guitar and Doug Edwards on bass. We played yeah. Maple Leaf Gardens in Toronto without a sound wow. check, I might add. And Jeez. the Civic Center in Ottawa. And in Ottawa, I came really close to getting an encore. Well, Toronto didn't go that well, but uh, <laughs> no, no. Yeah. Every, every artist that I know has had a, you know, the odd disaster. My, my old manager used to say, you got to hit a home run every time. Right. And I said, well, that's not possible. Yeah. Just, yeah. <laughs> well, when you get put in impossible situations, uh, sometimes it's hard and, uh, yes. and that happened, but, uh, you know, sometimes it would work out in your favor. So you just, yeah. you don't know. Every well, time you again, step out on stage, it's a gamble, right? Yes, that's, that's true. And you're putting yourself out there. And, and, and again, with you too, it's, it's, you know, when I listen to your albums and going through them, like you, you had a lot of different sort of flavors. You have a folk flavor and you're almost country at some times and you got some blues in there and you got some adult contemporary kind of sound jazz, stuff, and yeah. a little jazzy kind of stuff. Yeah. I mean, it, it's cool, but it's, I was wondering how you categorize that. And then how does the audience respond to all that? Well, you know, I always say there's no fan, like a BIM fan. Uh, mm -hmm. They, you know, they, those who bought the albums, and there were quite a few, loved it. Uh, it was Absolutely, the people in the yeah. business I had to deal with. Well, you know, you can't do country, you know, yeah. you're too eclectic. And that, that was what I listened to. I, you know, you talked earlier about, uh, you know, widening your scope as a listener. And it, it influenced my writing. What really mm -hmm. had a big influence was the White Album, the Beatle White Album, because yeah. they really let her fly on that record. They tried all kinds of things. And I listened to that album religiously, and I thought, oh, well, I could try that. Mm -hmm. And so I consciously did, you know, well, I'll write a blabbity blah song. And then after a while, it became unconscious. And so just however the song came out, that's what it would be. And frankly, that's still the case. Yeah, no, it's a good point because I, I wrote a song one time called Looking for the Magic. And it was about that exact thing. I, I sort of broadened it out to life in general, but you're just looking for what works, you know, like sometimes yeah. you just have this magical combination of lyrics and melody and instruments and players and yeah. it just works and you don't have to really explain it. It just 
well, or, or even analyze the genre. It just works. All the good ones, you know, you don't mess with it. You just, you just, uh, you know, to use an old hippie phrase, let it flow, man. But yeah. uh, but you you let it roll out, and uh, if you need to fix it up, uh, maybe you can do that later. But put that editor away, and you know, um, on the new album, Edge of Blue, which is. I think I'm in my top five favorite songs I've written happened in a half hour one, mm. one morning when I was typing my morning pages and mm-hmm. uh, it, you know, I, I just let her roll. I just let yeah. it come. And and then later I went and neatened it up a bit and uh, there it is. Yeah. Oh, very cool. Yeah. So I have to ask you just, just for the sake of the listeners about, uh, yeah, I'm sure you've been asked many times about your name change, but you were, you were always known as Bim. And, and of course, when I was a teenager, you know, you had your, your song on the radio and everybody knew it and we listened to it all the time. And, and, uh, there was a band actually in Britain called Bim in the early eighties. Yeah. I didn't know. Why, that. Yeah. Yeah. And why did you decide to, to change your name? It to, was to, evolution. Yeah. You okay. know? Um, after, um, you know, in in the early eighties, when I kind of walked away from the quote unquote music business, I really didn't like it very much. Uh, Mm -hmm. and I went back to playing, you know, the folk festival, the the acoustic scene Uh, that I went back to that. And as that decade progressed, I just, everyone called me Roy. Nobody called me Bim anymore. Everyone called me Roy. And uh, on the posters, I would always have AKA Roy Forbes in brackets. And I said about 87, uh, I just decided to hell with it. I'm Roy Forbes. So, and it, it was a foolish thing to do because a lot of BIM fans, well, A, they were more tuned into the uh, mainstream than the acoustic area that i had uh, ended up working in okay so they lost yeah. track of me and yeah. i still get people coming up to me and say hey you're ben i said yeah that's me yeah so yeah but i had to do it just for my own for my own spirit it just needed yeah. to be done so. okay well though i appreciate you saying that because uh because i did from a marketing perspective i did wonder about it because that's I never right think you, about you... marketing perspective never have okay yeah, because because that's the <laughs> ultimate thing. Have, but, uh, well, to have to yeah. like Madonna and Prince, you say one word and yeah, people instantly connect to you, right? Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. It yeah. it just felt, uh, and and I don't uh, deny any of the work I did when I was yeah. going as Bim. I mean, I love it all, but it just yeah. it just felt, you know, hey, Elvis Costello tried it. <laughs> he wanted yeah. to be Declan. You know, um, and Cougar Mellencamp, you know, uh, he's still people still, I think maybe he's just John Mellencamp now, but I watched those guys struggle with that and yeah. kind of chuckled a bit. I said, you know, well, I mean, in Mellencamp's case, he thought that was a joke. He, he went in there and they said, well, Mellencamp's not really a name we can market. We want you to be John Cougar. And he was disgusted by that. Yeah, he was. And, yeah. You know, yeah. but they yeah. made him do it. And they then made as soon him as he it. could yeah. get it, as soon as yeah. he could get away from it, he said, that's it. You know, yeah. I'm John Mellencamp. I'm proud of my name. I don't care. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I mean, other people yeah. have had to deal with it, but Elvis yeah. Costello is still Elvis Costello. So I guess he's got a good yeah. marketing person working with him. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> that's 
So, and then uh, an, another sort of maybe thorny issue for you is about the record deals, right? Because, uh, it, you know, when you, when you come out and you got stars in your eyes and you're writing songs and people are loving them and you're singing from your heart, and then you get into the music business and you, you, you had a couple of deals with Casino Records and uh, then you had Electra, and then I guess, you know, you, you had some, some ups and, and I downs went with independent. the record. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. so what was the deal? Casino Records was your first deal, right? You got that out of Vancouver? Yes. And, uh, you know, uh, Ray uh, really believed in what I was doing, and uh, we did those first two albums. And then, uh, you know, he put together the deal with Electra. So I went with okay. Electra. And uh, that was through, you know, that was through Ray. I didn't leave him and go with Electra. It was through him. And okay. uh, of course, it worked out well for him. He got a lot of cash. And mm. uh, then uh, I did the album with Emmett Rhodes in L.A., which was a, a we could talk an hour or two about that experience. Yeah. It was really That's... interesting. Uh, yeah. Not necessarily positive at the time, but in retrospect, I learned so much and I got to yeah. work with some incredible people, you know, I'm, I got to work with Jeff Picaro for God's sake, you know, sit, yep. you know, one of the best drummers in the world. Um, and of course I had to talk Emmett into hiring David Foster because, uh, mm. David hadn't quite, <laughs> he hadn't quite hit it yet, but, yeah. uh, you know, he came in and did some amazing work and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Jim Keltner came in, but he didn't make the record. You know, hmm. um, yeah. but and then after uh, after that was done, uh, the album was done. There was a clearing out of the A and R department. So you know, like it was released in August '78, and by September or October, uh, the A and R department had been totally cleaned out, and any anything that they had been working on. Like there was another group called Jelly and it, there were a couple other, we were all dropped. So, oh, wow. yeah, yeah. So that was, uh, that, you know, it, it, a sad story that many of us have to tell, but, well, um, the, yeah. Yeah. I and mean, then after that, um, you know, I messed around a bit for a year and a half. I had a great band and, uh, you know, but by, by the summer of 1980, I'd had enough of the mm. music business. And I, I have a song I'm working on called I Walked Away. And yeah. uh, really, I'd had enough. I needed uh, I needed the shelter of the folk acoustic scene, and I went back to it. And I've kind of worked in that field ever since, you know, mm. since 1980. Yeah. And um, there you go. Yeah, well, it's interesting when you look back because okay, you come down here in in the early '70s. You're a young guy. You get involved in the scene. You get a record deal. You put out a couple albums. You got songs on the radio. You're doing. You're living the dream. And then then you're in L.A. You're yeah. you're, you're with the big boys now. Oh boy, you got a yeah. you, you got a record deal, U.S. record deal. You're recording with these major guys. Yeah. And then within just a, a couple of years after that, you're kind of disgusted with the business and going, this is not yeah. the real world here. It's a common story, I'm afraid. Yeah. 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 It's, it's, yeah. it's amazing. I'm sure you've heard this story from others you've interviewed as well, but you well, know, I, have, I, yeah. I took control and, um, you know, I've, I've done a bunch of albums. I've, I've done all my best writing, I think, since, uh, since leaving the music business. I mean, there were, yeah. some of the BIM songs are really good, and I I play right after my heart every night. But I feel yeah. like I really started to become a decent songwriter 
in the eighties and nineties, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and I still am, you know, I, I still, yeah. I, I feel like I'm getting better. You know, I'm, I'm okay. always getting better. Well, that's the thing. It, it depends what metric you use to, to determine your level of success, right? Like a, like a record company is always going to use record sales as their metric of your level of success yeah. or radio play. Yeah. And, and as the artist, you're looking at it going, you know, I wrote this song from my heart and it really means a lot to me. That's my level of success that I want. Yeah. I just didn't feel like dealing with it anymore, you know? And, yeah. uh, so I found a more comfortable niche to, uh, to, to prosper and <laughs> prosper, yeah. maybe not as hugely as, uh, Neil Young or someone like that. But I think a lot of people you're talking to right now are going to say the same thing, you know, like yeah. you can only take it for so long. And, uh, and then, you know, I needed control and, yeah. uh, and I took it and here well, I, I am, yeah. here I am it's still funny. standing. You're doing well too. And it's, it's funny cause I talked to Graham Shaw and he went through a similar thing, right? Yeah. And he yeah. and he said they wanted to take him down to LA and give him a makeover. And he said, I don't want a makeover. What are you talking about? You know? Yeah. So he refused. Yeah. But, he knew exactly what that meant. We're going to turn you into something that we, we're going to commodify you, basically. Yeah, and, I know. You know I know. Like, I'm not. Yeah. I'm not into it. I'm, yeah. I'm good. Well, you still have to get to sleep at night, right? You yes. Want to be well, able to sleep at night. So. But I guess in looking at your timeline, I thought, well, okay, you came down from Dawson Creek to the big city of Vancouver. I guess you could have went to Edmonton, but you came to Vancouver. And then you made the jump to L.A. So you actually lived down there for a year or two, well, right? Six months. Okay. Five or six months. That's all. Yeah. Yeah. Just but long enough your to big, do the record. Was that your big dream was to go and sort of take on the U.S. market and get a big U.S. record deal and be a. I didn't have a big dream. I just wanted to do some, make some records. You know, I wanted mm. to be like Neil Young. Yeah. And that, that's really, I didn't sit around dreaming about uh, how big and famous I could become. I just wanted to just keep doing it and uh, have it all happen, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, very cool. Yeah. And then of course they want you to chase hit songs. So what was your view on that? Like songwriting, were you chasing hit songs or trying to keep up with the times no. or what was your, I never did. No, no, no. I just wrote. So I just wrote the songs I wrote and, uh, you know, that, that's what I did. Yeah. I never, I don't think I ever sat down and thought, Jesus, I need a hook for this thing. You know? Okay. I mean, yeah. they've always just come, you know, the yeah. little guitar intro for right after my heart. I mean, it's a, it's a beautiful thing. And yeah. uh, it just came and the song built out of that. I mean, I've always, it was my, my education with the Beatles and the Stones and, uh, you know, other groups from that era. You know, I mean, the Beatles uh, themselves, you know, those records always, they just had it going on right from yeah. the beginning to the end and and that still informs my songwriting i think i'm a, a melody chord guy and then i'm a lyricist uh mm. the melodies and chords you know i've got probably 40 songs that that are half built <laughs> yeah. so to speak you know like pieces, and yeah. uh they just need the lyrics to uh yeah. to fill them in so uh, a lot of that comes from you know from the the you know, Paul McCartney. I mean, he was Mr. Yeah. Melody and I, I, uh, I, I love that. Yeah. 
Well, yeah, it's a, it's a good point. And then I guess you, you've coached people on songwriting, but the funny thing is your approach to songwriting, uh, you know, I, I'm sort of with you on that. It's sort of a natural thing that sort of emanates from your heart and you, you want to find things that people can relate to emotionally and, and musically, of course, but there's a whole industry out there that sort of codifies what it is to be a songwriter. And they talk about the payoff and the build up to the chorus and, and, copying other chord patterns to to try to create this i don't know i don't, I don't want to use the word artificial but it's it's sort of like a, a manufacturing process where you go into the studio and manufacture songs and people yeah. like you and, and me too like i never think of it that way well i mean i i know about all that i mean you know uh, i've taught songwriting so, I mean, yeah. I know all that, you know, the, the different forms. And you need to be aware of them, the AABA form, which is still my favorite form to write. Yeah. Uh, like like yesterday, uh, you know, you got a, a verse, a verse, a bridge, and then another verse. And the title mm-hmm. repeats itself in, in the verses. Uh, and then there's yeah. the big rock, you know, the uh, verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, and then solo and the verse, and then the last big chorus. I mean, I know about, you yeah. know, the rise from the verse, you know, the, the two-line rise, you know, going up yeah. to the chorus. I know about all that. Um, but when I'm writing, I try, I, I try not to think <laughs> about it. And it, it like, it's like a jazz player. Or you think of it like a jazz player, you know. You spend your time, you spend your time learning your instrument in every key you can. And then when you're doing the work, you're just doing it. Yeah. You're just doing it. You're just, you're just letting her, letting it roll. And yeah. uh, maybe later, when you go back, when you're writing a song, maybe later you can go back and fix up the problems. Cause they are, they are, there's always a word that bugs you or whatever. And eventually yeah. you find it. Sometimes it takes 30 years, but uh, <laughs> eventually you find it. Well, I think you make a good point because it's it's a sort of a musical intuition that develops, I, th- I guess is a good way to put it. Yeah. Well, the thing is, when I think back to songs that I was writing when I was 14, 15, I, I knew that stuff. And then yeah. uh, somehow I didn't know it for a while. And then I had to kind of almost relearn, you know, like how, yeah. how you know, a bridge, you know, or a chorus. I mean, I knew that stuff intuitively right off the bat. Yeah. And, uh, you know, sometimes you got to go back to that and uh, revisit and think, oh, right, that's how it all works. <laughs> yeah, no, very cool. And and the songwriting process, again, is is asymmetric too, right? I've talked to lots and lots of songs. I talked to Dan Hill yesterday, actually, but there's no formulaic way to do it. Everyone has a different sort of way. And then you're collaborating with others. It, it, there's no real sort of formula, right? <laughs> Not for me. And I, I've only collaborated, I've only co-written with uh, Connie Calder. Um, okay. But um, not really a co-writer. I would like to kind of keep yeah. my idea close. But no, there's no formula. It could be, you know, for Big Mouth Shut on the new album, uh, I was shaving, I think, and I heard it. And then the lyric came out. I had my cassette and I threw it on my cassette. And then later on, I fleshed it out, whereas something like right after my heart came from a guitar lick or, uh, you know, if I were a raven, one of my favorite songs was written as a poem. So, uh, you know, I say get it any way you can. 
Absolutely. Well, I'm a bit surprised you didn't write with uh, Bill and Sherry when you did UHF. You we never didn't. Wrote any no, songs. Oh. we never did. I think we we would occasionally help each other with a line if, if one of us is writing a song, and we said, "Geez, I okay. you, know, you know." But but there was never any credit given for that. That just yeah, sort of uh, toss. But no, we never did. I don't. I'm not sure why that is. I think we're the three of us are quite different writers. So maybe yeah. that's it. Yeah. Well, I guess it depends on you, like like Gordon Lightfoot too. He would just lock himself away and just write. He would, right? yeah. So he wouldn't. Yeah. He wouldn't and I've be done that. I've, I've done, yeah. you know, I've gotten a hotel room, and for the Crazy Old Moon album, I went out to Harrison, stayed in oh, the, nice. the spa motel for about three yeah. or four days, and oh, wow. did did nothing but write. And you know, I had a Canada Council grant in uh, two thousand, and I went to the band center, and nice. uh, you know, I. I had a nice room there and I, I stayed there for, I don't know, a week or two and wrote there, you know, yeah. but yeah, it's, uh, it's hard to know. It's just when the good ones come, they come. Sometimes yeah. if you're, if you're there and you think, okay, I have to write, it's almost like a yeah. pressure that, that, yes. uh, that pushes it away somehow. It's hard to explain it. It writing is, uh, you know, Neil Young talks about, you know, if you, you you never look it in the eye, you know, like say mm. if you're you know, like a wild animal or something, you don't want to look it in the eye. You got to be really kind of cagey with it and let it yeah. come to you. And you uh, that's yeah. probably the best way to say it for me. Yeah, it's it's funny because I was talking, I, I interviewed all the people from Lunch at Allen's, right, with uh, Mark Jordan and yeah. Mary McLaughlin and, and Ian Thomas and stuff. And they, they wrote a song together, but they couldn't collaborate. So they each wrote a verse. Oh, <laughs> so yeah. Settled yeah. It. yeah. I can imagine those guys they all sang trying to collaborate. Yeah. Yeah. No, they couldn't get a word in edgewise. <laughs> I love them all. I love them all. Yeah, yeah. And, and great, but they just decided, okay, you write your verse, I'll write mine. And yeah. then I came up with yeah. the verse. And then but who did the melody, it. though? Well, I think they who well, did the Mark frame have, who did the framework I'm, for it. I'm not sure. They probably they probably <laughs> just agreed on that too. So uh, yeah, no, I, I admire funny. all of those all of those uh, all four oh, of yeah. them. Cindy yeah, Cindy has recorded a couple of my songs over the years. Yes, I did see that on there because I, yeah. I was able to interview all four of them. So I've not, spoken to all four. Nice. Of them and, yeah, yeah. No, yeah, I, yeah. I'm very fond of all of them. Yeah. yeah. Well, just really. And in fact, and one of my early uh, recording experiences. <laughs> When I was in Toronto in 73, I did a CBC broadcast recording with Ian Thomas producing. That oh, was nice. the first time I met him, and he was working on Painted Ladies at the time. Wow. And then a couple of years later, in 76, a KTL album comes out, uh, Canada's Finest. And oh. I'm on there. And I think I think Painted Ladies is on there, too. So. Oh, nice. Yeah. Yeah, well, because he got an early start. I mean, he was a teenager himself. He went down and he was a producer at CBC, and he was barely twenty years old. Yeah, he was. Yeah, he's he just a kid. Yeah, pretty cheeky was, of him. Well, but, I was nineteen, <laughs> I think. I was twenty. He probably. Yeah. I don't think he's that much older than I am. Yeah, he's just, a little bit. Yeah. You know, indecently talented man. Oh, it's excellent. Yeah. Really good. So, so I was going to ask you about UHF and, and the, you know, that was back in 89. That was almost 30, over 30 years ago now that you guys yeah. just sort of came together by accident. It was, um, Sherry and I had been booked to play a festival, a winter festival in Vancouver. And, uh, some, one of the presenters came to us and said, well, you know, would you guys consider doing something together? And, uh, you know, if you had, would you get someone else in? Like, what if it were a trio? 
And um, mm. I think I think I came up with the idea of Bill because he and I had crossed paths a little bit, you know. Well, obviously early on, but but just recently, you know, at, at an Edmonton Folk Festival and uh, a couple of industry events, we ended up sitting together, talking about Don yeah. Gibson, and uh, mm-hmm. so we got Bill in, and there we were, the three of us at Sherry's condo, uh, kind of looking at each other, and we started, <laughs> and uh, we 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 did mostly stuff that hadn't been performed before. Not all, mm. but mostly, you know, we brought new songs to the group and uh, and we played our first show at the Vancouver East Cultural Centre. And uh, as they like to say, we blew the doors off the place, Yeah, you know, yeah. blew the roof off. It was quite, <laughs> quite something. And uh, it, you know, CBC cottoned on to it because they taped that first night. There's a tape okay. out there. Well, I actually have a cassette of it in the basement. Yeah. But... Um, you know, Todd Elvig said, oh, you know, we could do an album. So uh, they, CBC, um, CBC sort of allowed us to go into Mushroom with Claire and Rolf Henneman Engineering. Okay. And yeah. uh, we did the first album. And then uh, later on, we did the second album. Rolf uh, and Dave shared engineering duties on that one. Okay. Dave, uh, Dave Hayes slagged yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, yeah, so it, it was fun. And, uh, it, you know, if you would have said, you know, you'll be singing with these two, I would have said, really? Yeah. Um, not, not because I didn't admire them. Of course I did, but, uh, just didn't, just didn't seem like something that could happen, but it did. Mm. And it's, it, it's, uh, was a magical thing. Yeah. Well, that, there's some, some great songs that house up on a hill, uh, up on the hill, Sherry. lovely song that's really yeah. good yeah like really good and then you did keep keep lighting that fire which is kind of a blues you got your slide in there and stuff that's very cool yeah yeah and call up an old friend that nice yeah you know, lifting good... my heart is the one i think of uh when i think yeah. of uhf and that's the one mm. video we did as well um yeah. and uh yeah and and the thing is that uh, it was fun for me to be a side guy for two-thirds of the time to just right. sit yeah. back and play guitar and uh, play harmony. And Bill and I, uh, we developed a pretty cool rapport guitar-wise, mm. which still exists, um, yeah. you know, if we ever got together again. But, yeah. uh, you, you know, playing guitar with him uh, was a lot of fun. You know, we'd yeah. swap well, and part back and forth. Sometimes you didn't know who was doing what, you yeah. know. And Well, uh, I mean, it's nice to play. Bill's just a natural talent. Oh, he and, is. and it's yeah. nice to play with people yeah. like that, right? Yeah. I find our vibrato is the same on the guitar. Hmm. Very similar. I don't know. He probably, <laughs> influ- oh, maybe he influenced me. I influenced him. Yeah. But uh, yeah, so that, uh, and the harmonies were always uh, well, really good. I'm not great. a big fan of three-part harmony. I like two-part best, like the Everly Brothers. Yeah. But uh, yeah. I grew to love some of the three-part that we did. Yeah. yeah, no, it's it's yeah. really good. And so are you yeah. still active? Is there any plans or anything? Or no, no plans. I think we're all busy. I mean, I'm, you know, pretty pretty concentrated on uh, Edge of Blue, the new album. Yeah, and, yeah. which uh, is great. All of that. So yep. time will tell. And, and you just played at Blue Frog actually last November because I, I remember I saw the advertising for it. 
And yeah. uh, we, we were there the week after we came in the week after you did, you were there November 13th. I think we were there the 20th okay. and 21st, Yeah. but I did see that. So you were doing songs from your new album. I did. And, uh, well, it was a mixture of, I mean, pushing a new album, obviously, but, uh, you know, it did right off to my heart and uh, keep lighting that fire. And it was yeah. fun. It was fun. Yeah. It was the first live stream that I've done. I know people okay. have been sitting on their couch and sticking their iPhones in front of them or whatever, but I was always disappointed in the sound of that. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. So I held off. Uh, but when the Blue Frog thing came up, I knew Pat Glover had his stuff together and they tell me the video looked good as well. So, yeah. uh, really and, and it felt really good. It felt yeah. really good. And yeah. I was happy to do it. And it's yeah, no, you're still right archived up there, I think. So, Yes. Yeah. You can still see it, but you're right about that because a lot of those live hits and stuff, they just don't come across that well. And it, unless you're in a studio in a controlled environment where you exactly. can. Exactly. I, I mean, I don't mean to be mean about it, but I just yeah. didn't want to have that out there. Uh, there's already enough stuff uh, that I'm not told about, uh, you know, people <laughs> yeah. sticking their iPhones up at a show or something. It's uh, it. Uh, I'm not a fan of that. I think I feel it yeah. quite intrusive. And, um, and it's really, I I guess I like to control what goes out there and Mm. I, I, that kind of stuff frustrates me, but there you go. Well, no, it's my opinion. It's a hundred percent true because, uh, when, when cell phones first came out, you know, we were doing casino shows and theater shows and stuff. And the, and the staff used to go around and tell people they can't record, but it just became overwhelming. Everyone has a cell phone. Everyone yeah. oh, has yeah. a recording device. Yeah. Yeah. So you can't stop it. And and one time a guy didn't hire our band. He said, well, I saw a video of him. I didn't think was very good. Well, there's well exactly. Yeah. Everybody same. and their dog has a video. <laughs> yeah. 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 You know, who knows what video it was? I don't know. Yeah, no exactly. Idea. Yeah. So. So, but your new album, Edge of Blue, um, great players on there. And so I was going to ask you about that. You, you've got some of the the standard sort of top level guys like Phil Robertson playing drums or Chris Norquist is on there as well. Yeah. And Chris Brian and I Newcomb. go way back. He yeah. was in my, in the BIM band, as I call it in the oh. late, late 79, 80. Yeah. I call Chris, him Johnny Coolman. Yeah, I know. Oh, yeah. And he played on the Humankind album. And, uh, yeah, we're, okay. we go way back. Phil, uh, yeah. really liked what Phil did on there. He brought a different, uh, drumming sensibility to it. Uh, yeah. and Brian Newcomb on bass is just solid yeah. as yeah. is Miles Hill. I mean, Miles, yeah. I've worked with him on and off for years and Brian too. You know, I do, um, well, I was doing the Motown Meltdown show. I did it for like 16, 17 years. Hmm. Uh, are you familiar with that? <clears throat> Uh, no, I'm not. Well, I, it's I know a, the name. Yeah, it's a, a show that was at the Commodore every year. And uh, basically, everybody did Motown tune. So you get, yeah. you you do one. You learn your tune and you go on and you do one. And okay. Brian was in the band anyway. Yeah. And I knew about him because he played on the Christmas album that Connie Calder and I did. But uh, yes. I love yeah, his I playing. It's as solid yeah. as a rock. Yeah, well, these guys are top guys. I mean, those are those are yeah. the guys, and and uh, and then you had Rebecca. So oh, I, yeah, Soichet. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so sh- uh, uh, Rebecca Soichet. Soichet is the way yeah. she pronounces it. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, and, I saw her in Soulstream. Right, she sings. She sings for Soulstream, doesn't she? I believe so. Is yeah, I've never yeah. seen her do that, but she was yeah. at Motown, and where I connected with her and with Chris Jestrin, the 
fellow who did keyboards. Uh, they're Great. they're kind of new to my crowd, and um, I I do these shows with Steve Dawson. Uh, where Steve liked to get people together and reimagine an album. Hmm. Uh, I've done three shows with him. We've reimagined the Bowie Ziggy Stardust record. Oh wow! Uh, we've did uh, Mad Dogs and Englishman, the Joe Cocker one, yeah. and there we did go. the Tom Petty Full Moon Fever album. Oh neat! So Chris yeah. plays with Steve, and that's where I became aware of him. He was also hired. Uh, for a CBC TV special that I did uh, in 2017 with Ben Hepner and Tanya. We all happened to be from Dawson Creek. And um, I love Chris's playing. Uh, He's, uh, you know, to me, he's the one uh, whenever I record. He's he's on there if I can get him. He's on there. He did those parts. I think it was... uh, I think we did most of them in, in a day, like a five, six hour oh. session. And then he did yeah. Lover's Moon overnight on his own. But uh, wow. he's just a talented guy. Great yeah. Hammond player. Yeah. Oh, very good. Yeah. And no, I was going to ask you about that because I love that's my favorite keyboard instrument is a Hammond organ. I love it every time I hear it. It's just so warm and so good. And Yeah. The and he plays so Wurlitzer good. on it. You know, he plays where he's yeah. got a real Wurlitzer. He pulled it oh, out. Cool. And, yeah. Oh, very ha- nice. Hammered on it. For a couple of yeah. tunes, yeah. So oh, yeah, it was cool. a fine album to make. Um, yeah. And all the songs, uh, basically, I, I lost my sight at the end of 2015. And as I was kind of getting used <laughs> to life without it, uh, mm-hmm. these all these songs started to come out. So uh, yeah. I picked the 10 best one, the one that I could live with. And because yeah. uh, there were a bunch of them. There's still a <clears> bunch that... Uh, will probably come out at some point. Uh, But I picked the 10 10 I liked. I went into creation with Jim Woodyard, and in about a five, six-hour session, I recorded them all acoustically, all all of the tunes, except one. I recorded 10, and then Rumble Strip came later. But I recorded them acoustically, brought brought the uh, tapes, ha-ha, home and <laughs> and just checked out the tunes and see if they needed any more tweaking a couple of them did yeah. and then we started um in august of that year and worked away yeah, yeah. so did you record that at home you have a home studio or did you do it oh no i, I did it uh the album yeah uh i i recorded well first of all the acoustic test drive as i call it uh, I went into Creation Studios with Jim Woodyard. It's in uh, okay. Burnaby. Yeah. And then we did, Jim and I, uh, he engineered and I produced. And uh, we did the album, I guess, from August to January, August 2019 to January 2020. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. Well, good. And well, again, uh, and, I'm yeah. sorry uh, to, for interrupting. Yeah. And again, the uh, vocals and acoustic guitar were done live with with the band track oh nice okay yeah Yeah, no i was just gonna say it's at royforbes.com and uh, people can check it out edge of blue is the new album excellent great production some great songs on there great players obviously we just discussed so i would encourage our listeners to to go there and check it out do it and if you feel like buying a cd do that as well absolutely yeah (laughs) we won't talk about cd sales will we dan (laughs) yeah well (laughs) It's so funny how that, how that goes now, you know, people, one time we were playing a gig and we had some CDs for sale and this guy comes up and he goes, um, can I buy you guys a drink? And I said, well, 
no, but we got some CDs for sale. He goes, oh, I don't want one of those. <laughs> I said, so, I know. so you'll buy us a drink, but you won't yeah. buy a CD. Won't buy he a goes, CD. That's yeah. right. So he walked yeah. away. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it's, uh, it's quite the deal. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. so, uh, yeah. And I appreciate you taking the time. I just wanted to ask you about a few other quick things if I, if I may. Oh, I'm, I'm, um, I'm here yeah. for as long as you need me. Good. No, I yeah. appreciate that. I, I had a whole list of things I wanted to ask you about. And, and of course that you were, you're a radio host. You're, you're, you're somewhat of a historian with your record collection and you, you did the CBC radio snap, crack on pop, which you did the, a couple times a year, I guess, for, for many years. Yeah, about three and or then, four times a year. For Actually, uh, we flew under the radar and we managed to get 13 years in Paul Grant and I. Well, yeah. good. Yeah. yeah, very nice. Yeah, I did listen to some of that. And then um, I, I did read a, a little bit up on that. And then you did the CKUA um, where you do the 78s. Well, I do. It's Roy's record room. I do. uh, Yes. I do. uh, You know, all three speeds, but mostly seventy eights right now. And and we're just celebrating sixteen years and uh, on April the tenth. Yeah, very Um, nice. I did see that. And then, so you're a prolific collector of albums. And then you give sort of the history. That that's why I guess I cued on the on the seventy eights. But it's it's triple R, and then you have in your personal collection. You have many of those, right? And you talk about the history of them. Yeah. Too many, yeah, yeah. We're we're actually starting to. I'm starting to go through them now and get rid of things I don't really need. But yeah. there's a lot. There's a lot of stuff. Uh, you know, as as a record collector, you start out buying one or two. Before you know it, you're buying collections. Yes, well, there <laughs> and, you go. Uh, you know, it, it's. Uh, I'm not acquiring as much as I used to because I have so much that I still need to listen to. So right. it, it's fun. I do a series called 78s from the crates on the show. And uh, I'm literally going through melt crates to 78s and I'm finding stuff I didn't know I had. So, wow. yeah, it's fun. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's neat. But I, I, the, the, what interests me is the historical part of it that you're, you know, that's part of what we're doing on liner notes is creating history and talking with a more in-depth conversation to, to people like yourself. But having that history and and remembering it and then educating people with it. Uh, history is so important. Uh, and yeah. I'm glad you're doing this for uh, all the, you know, with all the people you've talked to. Mm-hmm. And uh, as I mentioned earlier in the conversation, when I came to Vancouver, well, first of all, I'll say that, uh, you know, growing up as a kid, top 40 was, was uh, quite amazing. You know, you'd, your whiter shade of pale and pictures of Lily and, yeah. you know, all, all the Neil Diamond ba- records on Bang, you know, a Solitary Man and yeah. I've Got the Feeling, uh, the Beatles, the Stones, the Who, I mentioned the Who, Hendrix. Uh, but then, so that was fine. I rolled along with all of that. And then when I got to Vancouver in 71, I started wanting to know what came before all of this. What influenced Bob Dylan to write whatever song? What song did he kind of slightly steal from? (laughs) (laughs) Whatever. And uh, so I, I, at that time, I started collecting older records, 78s and 45s, because I wanted to know what, what uh, came before. And that still applies, Uh, you know, the, One of the things I say in Roy's record room, the show that continues to revolve and reveal the roots, you know, yeah, you so, uh, yeah. 
So it, it's still going on. I'm still trying to figure out who did everybody trying to be my baby first. It could have been uh, Roy Newman's Western Swing Band or a guy named Johnny Barfield in 1940, you know. Hmm. Uh, yeah. And we know it by the Beatles, right? Yeah. yeah. And- Interesting point you make, too, because uh, a lot of times people would lift things from other people. Like I saw the article about Johnny Cash with Folsom Prison. Like he, oh, the, oh, that's those a good one. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. He just lifted them from a. That wasn't writer. unconscious either. <laughs> Yeah, I know. Yeah, Yeah. I I was, I was, I had a big chuckle when I, when I found out about that. Yeah. Yeah. So, but you know, that's influence, I guess that's a more direct influence. You know, the thing is that, um, we're all influenced by things and, um, you know, um, you can look at my songs, you can look at anybody's songs, and there's going to be something from somewhere oh, in sure. there. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, even uh, on Edge of Blue, uh, there are a lot of lines in those songs that reference other songs. However, yeah. however, it's subtle. But, I mean, people have been doing it for years, and so have I. You know, I'm lifting my heart, you've got, uh, you know, uh, really my inside was out. The line flies by, but when I when I see it, I think, oh, everybody got something to hide except for me and my monkey. <laughs> your inside is out, your outside is in, and then later on in the tune, uh, I I sing about, uh, yeah, I, I was sinking down in the flood, and that references one of my favorite Bob Dylan songs. So oh, there you go. You can yeah. sneak that stuff in there, and uh, those in the know, so to speak. We'll get a bit of a thrill out of it. And I mean, I do that when I listen to Bob Dylan, you know, Uh, and it it goes way back. I mean, it's uh, in a way uh, it I don't think it's it's stealing. It's more like giving a nod, like listen to Tom Petty's albums. And you'll hear little guitar things and just little vocal inflection where he's giving the nod to Mick Jagger, uh, you know, between the buttons era or whatever. I love Mm -hmm. that stuff. I I think it's paying tribute to your roots. Well, I think, no, that's a fair point. And when I talked to Murray McLaughlin, because I I, I can hear in Blue Rodeo, I can hear the influence. And then Murray said, well, I don't know if I have any children out there, but I'm sure I do. Yeah. And I thought, well, that's a good way to put it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, uh, oh, for sure. We all influence each other, you know? Yeah. You know, oh, that's good. I've got a song no. where I'm working on right now that there's there's a melody part that sounds a little bit like one of Bill's songs. So I might have yeah. to change it a bit. <laughs> yeah. Oh, good. Yeah. yeah. No, that's that's great. And then and then of course you you listen to the good stuff and then you're influenced by the better stuff and it makes you better too, right? I mean, that's well, the hopefully idea, it's right? good. But you know, one of my guilty pleasure pleasure one of my guilty pleasures is. Uh, uh, but the group Hot Chocolate, You Sexy Thing. I yep. love that record. I yeah. believe in miracles. Yeah. You know? So yeah. is that the good stuff? I don't know. Just whatever catches my ear. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. No, very cool. Well, I appreciate you sharing the insight on that. And then uh, the other thing I want to ask you about was that you did uh, a concert in Dawson Creek. Like you never lost your roots and you're, you're proud to say you're from Dawson Creek. And they, they named a, a street after you there they did yeah that was that was pretty amazing and they gave me a uh uh, that same weekend i got a uh, honorary arts degree from northern light college and uh yeah i go back there as often as i can Uh, i was last there 
think in 2015, maybe. Uh, yeah. And there's plan to go back as soon as oh, we good. can sort things out. Yeah. You know, with well, it's the a different world now. How, how different yeah. is it now from where, the place you grew up? Oh, it's uh, it it different, and but in many ways it's still the same. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, obviously, uh, it you know, the population it 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 expands and contracts, you know, as right. uh, different things happen around the area. Mm-hmm. Yeah, with the economy, I guess. And my it goes spirit up and really, down. Uh, my true spirit is in a little town called Rolla which is just outside of Dawson Creek where my early family roots are and Pooscoopy, which is uh, right. about seven miles towards Edmonton or yes, uh, yeah, did. seven miles the other way. And uh, that's where my true spirit lives up there in those two little communities. Yeah. You wrote that into the song into one of your recent songs, right? Uh, I, I think I did. Yeah. I know I mentioned Pooscoopy and broke down on yeah. uh, the album on thistles. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you do. I, I did hear that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, cool. And then, and then you've rubbed shoulders with lots of people, I guess. Rita Coolidge and Susan Jacks. You, what was your association with Susan Jacks? Well, Susan was on Casino when I was signed, and okay, yeah. um, of course, I'd watched her on Music Hop, the uh, yes, the, the weekly the show out of Vancouver. I saw a lot of people that I ended up getting to know. Including yeah. Bill and uh, I, who know Tom Northcott, a lot of well, Howie, lot of cool Howie, Howie Vickers, Vickers. Yeah, yeah, Howie, yeah, yeah. and um, you know I always loved her voice, and oh, I great. couldn't believe it when uh, Aish she said she'd sing on my record, so she sings on uh, Leave It to the Lord. She does yeah. some backup vocals on there, and nice. uh, then they were looking for songs, and I sent a, I sent some. And a couple that I sent, I hadn't, I've never recorded them actually, Dirty Blues, oh. and sometimes it's hard to know. And those are the two that she chose. Nice. And uh, I was just over the moon. I mean, I was playing it cool at the time, but inside, yeah. <laughs> I was over the moon that Susan yeah. Jacks would A, sing on my record, and B, actually record a couple of my songs. Those were yeah. my first two official covers. And it turns out yeah. there have been quite a handful over the years. Oh, very nice. Yeah, no, that's that's great. I just wanted to ask you about the connection because I did talk to Susan, and I'm a huge fan, and she's an extremely talented. Oh, and a, a sweet human. Yeah, just a wonderful absolutely. human. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, good. Well, I always like to ask uh, my guests what, looking back on your career, what would you change or what would you do differently if you could go back and do it again? You know, that's a tricky thing because if you change one thing, then everything changes, right? right. So, um, you know, there are obviously there are some things that uh, were amazing looking back and there were some things that weren't amazing, but, uh, I, I, I don't want to mess with that, you know? Okay. So I'm yeah. just sticking with what's happened and where I am now. As yeah, I said, uh, for the third time, I'll say still standing. <laughs> there you go. Hey, maybe there's, well a, maybe too. there's a song in that, Dan. Yes. There you go. <laughs> No, that's a good one. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me today It's a, and have an in-depth conversation about, you know, where you've been, where you're at and where you're going. And uh, you're still active, which is great. And you got other shows coming up, I assume? I do. Yeah. Uh, Alberta tour, end good. of April. And then there's other stuff starting to come in slowly. Um, nice. And uh, <clears throat> yeah, just, just keep on, uh, keep on keeping on to use that old worn yeah. out cliche. 
Yeah, no, that's good. Well, good. Well, thanks again for taking the time to talk to me today. And I'm sure the listeners are really going to appreciate what you had to say. Well, Dan, thanks for the opportunity to uh, rave on about uh, Uh, some different things. You've uh, brought up some interesting stuff and it was fun to get into it. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. Many thanks to Roy Forbes for being part of the Liner Notes podcast and sharing some insights from his incredible experiences in the music business. And more information is available at RoyForbes.com. Excellent website, lots of stuff on there. So we hope you enjoyed the podcast and invite you to subscribe to it and share it on social media so others can enjoy it as well. And we invite you to listen to Dusty Discs Radio uh, to hear some of the Canadian artists you're hearing on this show. So until next time, I'm Dan Harris.